Extraordinary. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there. I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential, and became extraordinary. On this season of Contrary to Ordinary, we explore the motivation, lives, and character of the innovators who see limitless potential around them. The people behind some of the largest paradigm shifts in the practice of dentistry. The renowned Koi Center has revolutionized dental care. It was the first center to provide a graduate program for practicing dentists that implemented a structured science-based curriculum. It may be hard to believe, but in years past, a lot of dental practice was rooted in opinion. I went through dental school in the 70s. Back then, we didn't have as many options for care, and we were trained to use heroic measures to save each and every tooth. I remember sitting in the first presentation on opening day at the Coy Center. I could not know then what a huge impact this institution would have on my life and the world. But I knew we were in for a change when founder John Coyce stood at the podium and shared a story from his childhood. When I was nine years old, I was in a boat explosion with my dad. We had a small boat with a gas leak and it exploded. And we were actually five miles offshore in the Atlantic Ocean. Fortunately, we were rescued fairly quickly because the flames alerted someone that alerted the Coast Guard. And once the helicopter came, I knew we would be okay. And when they pluck you out of the water, that's an amazing feeling. After John recounted that story, he said something contradictory to everything we had been taught. He said that dentists are not the Coast Guard. We don't have to go out today. Each tooth does not need to be addressed with the immediacy of a raft escaping the burning wreckage of decay. He advocated for an interdisciplinary, research-backed approach to whole patient care. The Coist Center remains the only continuous learning center for dental professionals that conducts and publishes its own research. Self-funded, the research is not beholden to the interests of sponsors. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of exploring the elements that make the man behind the legendary Coyce Center extraordinary. John Coyce is unique in the realm of innovation. He did not start out with the ambition to make a vision a reality. He simply saw a need, followed his curiosity, and went all in. I didn't see myself the way I see myself today with the center. Right. Uh, because I started like everybody else. I was providing lectures to bigger groups all around the world. Right. And I was looking for an opportunity to consolidate kind of the material and improve the benefit level to the students or the dentists that were coming because right. it wasn't just about education, it was about implementation. And I started to get more frustrated when I would go places, people would tell me nice things, but it's not really changing their lives. The problem with the person giving the lecture is you don't grow from that experience. Uh -huh. And I think 
what's happened to me being at the teaching center, being with small groups of people that it's a more intimate experience, number one, but number two, when they're coming back through the continuum, now I get to live through what their frustrations are in trying to understand and learn. And I think what created the system the way you know it today is what has emerged from the ashes, so to speak, of the frustrations Uh of people and learning when they start to be similar frustrations, we try to do things to resolve those issues for people. And I think even the system is is based on what I call intellectualized simplification, where you think about something so much that you start to make breakthroughs that now you can digest this information and it's not so fragmented. It's not like dental school was. Even though dental school had great components to them, it was difficult to put them together. So, you know, in the literature now they call this, or it's a slang kind of a term, but it's called combinatorial explosion, where as you learn to do certain things individually, it becomes much more powerful when they interrelate collectively. And that's the idea. I actually believe that you come to the center, even for the first course, you go home a different dentist. And in order to do that, I started to work through different ways of delivering the information and different ways to involve the audience. Because I tell people when you get here, listen, uh, you're all grown ass people. Right. You have your name on a door and I know you're you can all do this. I'm just trying to make it better. And and the nutshell of the center is the phone should ring for two reasons in your practice. Reason number one is new patients. It's for the growth of the practice. And the second reason the phone should ring is praise. Thanking you for what you got done. And, you know, if the phone rings for anything else, don't answer it. It's bad, right? It's bad. It's never good news. And all those adverse events or negative experiences is how the center was designed. It was designed reverse engineering to say, how can I research and account for all the negative things and improve on that? So that's the basis of it. What you love, what you are great at, what the world needs, what you can get paid for. According to the Japanese concept of ikigai, where all four elements converge is where life purpose lives. It can be described as the sense of mastery or the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. Being completely dialed into a sense of purpose is one indicator of innovators who lead extraordinary lives. John's purpose is palpable and the Koi Center is a physical extension of that passion. John and the Center might be a perfect example of finding Ikigai, but it never started as a money-making venture. It's happened by evolution, not revolution. I I didn't suddenly say, I'm doing this, I'm gonna just create this center. It just started to happen organically, the center never started as a business or an economic platform. It started as a way of disseminating the information. And then it required a business to be able to make it sustainable. So that point is the inception of the growth of the educational system here at the center. But as I look back, I would never say that I envisioned the way it is today. You also have a research center here. I do. Like you're the only education center like that that I'm aware of in the world that has its own research center and actually publishes research. Yes, and now it's even more significant than ever with Marta here. She is uh, not only a prosthodontist, but also as a PhD in digital dentistry. My son's a prosthodontist, but Marta has, since she's been here, well, in the last two years, has published over 150 articles. Let me tell you, she is a researching force. Right. And we need that 
in right. the digital realm right. because there's so much technology coming out so fast that we're not sure what to do with it, what it always means. And it's almost like dentistry is being invented on another platform, whether it's, you know, people talk about analog to digital or, you know, wax up with a, a wax spatula or a mouse. They still represent some core principles, but using the technology is getting very difficult to try to sort out based on the magnitude of the technology that's at our disposal, right. the cost, uh, the adoption rate, the understanding of it, but it's created some unique challenges, uh, but I think that's added a huge amount of excitement to dentistry. Oh, I think so too, John. And, and it seems like there's almost an explosion of technology coming out in the digital world. I know across the profession in terms of advancing where we're going with that, you know, in diagnosis and treatment planning, you know, and following patients' care. And you've advanced the ball so far. And yet I, you know, I know you and I are both sitting here looking at it going like, and I can't even see the end of the playing field from here. No, and you know, part of that, that's actually emerging more than where it was and I thought it would be, is actually allowing younger practitioners to even pivot a little bit because, you know, people want to be able to work from home a little bit. Well, if you have access to technology, maybe you could use some of the digital systems to access all the case workups that you do and using or managing your files and doing your digital design pieces with whatever software system you'd like to learn how to use, right. it's been a game changer. And I would say it's easier to teach somebody how to maybe what we would call wax a case or design a case, moving them from the spatula to the file once they understand. It's unbelievable how to leverage the talents that we have in now other ways that's really broadened the practitioner's perspective, it's right. pretty significant right now. Oh, I think it's, yeah, I'd agree with you. I think it's hugely significant. I mean, just, oh, I, I was sitting in a lecture this last summer listening to an, an oral surgeon who specializes in treating cancer patients. And they're doing robotic surgery, harvesting a part of the fibula that they had three months prior placed in, dental implants into the fibula. And they're taking out this section and a patient goes in with oral cancer in the morning and six hours later walks out with teeth. And they do this all on CAD CAM. They do it all ahead of time. They've mapped out the robotic parts of it. And, it, and I just sat there. I was, my, my mind was blown. As I, as I looked at this and I thought, how much progress we've made in the last 20 years, you know, for the quality of life for those people. I mean, to imagine being able to have that kind of treatment available to you today. And then I sat and I thought, I wonder what it's going to look like 20 years from now. Yeah, you right? know, uh, you talk about that. I am a little bit older than you are, but we've kind of practiced in about the same era right. of yeah. dentistry. Yep. I live in an area where we've moved from doing gold foils to learning artificial intelligence and right. machine learning. And and it's pretty interesting, right, what is happening oh, yeah. and all these transitions. And I think that in itself is creating a lot of tension in our profession because most dentists are training for yesterday. Right. The future is moving so fast that if we don't catch up, it's not just learning what we need to know to survive, it's learning and continuing our information based and our knowledge base to be in to thrive in the future, which is not that easy. Right, I think AI represents kind of an exciting and scary opportunity for us going forward. I mean, I can really see some incredible value it can bring in terms of creating consistency and in, in care levels between practitioners and, you know, reliability in terms of diagnosis, but also a little just scary from the standpoint of like, well, where does that all lead to, right? I looked at a AI program that they're developing for reading digital x-rays. Interproximal lesions, is the tooth cavitated or not? And that's kind of the, the decision point on whether we need to place a filling or not. And because those radiographs, when we read them, we know what the percentages of cavitation are, but we can't really determine which ones are cavitated or not by looking at that radiograph. Well, 
we can take computer programming, but but if it starts with that same basic radiograph, it really isn't does it can't be any better than we are, right? Correct. But so what we need long term then is some new, I think, scanning technology where we can actually is it cavitated or not, you know, and kind of have that answer. So I think it, it has limitations at the moment, but it's pretty exciting to see yeah, where that's going to go. Yeah, we've published on some of those things you've talked about. I yeah. think, you know, I do have some of the younger dentists that AI is intimidating, but, you know, what you brought to light is what we do. There's three things that make you sustainable, and if you focus on them, you're sustainable, and that's risk assessment, making decisions yep. that you could maybe get some help from a computer, but ultimately you're going to make that decision and that's not going to go to a computer by itself. The second one is where teeth go in the face, aesthetics. Right. And then the third one is how to make teeth fit together. And sounds easy, but it's not. And so when we learn what to focus on as we move forward, it's kind of like, you know, today... You don't have to learn to park a car. You could buy a car that parks itself. <laughs> so maybe uh -huh. I don't have to spend so much time focusing on the things that become obsolete. Absolutely. One of the things that I identify about the center is you've created a safe space, right? I think one of the things in the environment with your tribe, you've created a, a space where people are comfortable being themselves, Right. And I think by being so vulnerable yourself and open and sharing your failures, I think you've created an environment where it's like, okay, I don't have to be perfect. I recognize I'm going to have some failures. I need to take the lessons away from that. But it's all of us are smarter than one of us, right? It's palpable even at the center because when people come on the first day and they don't know each other, right. by the time we get to know each other and feel comfortable with each other, the safety piece that you right. mentioned, learning really kicks in. And, and I like to say, you know, it's also a famous quote, uh, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. Yeah. And I think that as you put that together, I, I feel that people really flourish in an environment they're comfortable with. And if that's not going to happen, the education is much harder to, you have to feel like it's being pushed into you rather than just absorbed into you. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and it's authentic and genuine, right? That's the atmosphere there. The magnitude of the talent of the people that are there. It's like, I've never seen that collection of talent and knowledge base, but really just dedicated, incredible people in one place at one time in our profession. It's breathtaking to me. That never leaves my mind. I think about that a lot. I, I think we've had seven presidents of the AACD. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, what's even in more interesting is there are so many impressive people that's not just by their achievements. It's when you get to know who they oh, are. Yeah. yeah. As people, yeah. they're impressive. And right. I, th I, how many people are incredibly artistic or musically inclined? In addition to dentistry, and I'm in awe. Everybody that, that comes, there's something they bring to the table that I learn from in their uniqueness. And so I've tried real hard to know the people that have been here in some ways, because right. maybe this is my opportunity to let them know they've touched my life in ways that they'll never realize either. And it's just the sometimes a small interaction with somebody is more meaningful or more significant than the amount of time that has gone by, uh, transpired, but the impact value could be more significant. So what, uh, what would you consider your greatest professional success? Uh, I'm most proud of my relationship with the, my students and, uh -huh. or now that are my friends or all the people that continue to tell me that it's been a wonderful experience in how we're working together because right. it's changed the, their life and changed the lives of their patients. And that's tremendously gratifying for me as a professional to feel like I have had that impact and to have people comfortable enough uh, sharing that with me. Right. 
do you ever just step back and look at your life and the number of people that you've made an impact and a difference in their life? And are there ever days when you just step back and go, wow. What I feel is really important is even when people are saying nice things, is to maintain a level of humility so you don't get full of yourself. Right. And so it's easy for me to control that. All I have to do is take out the garbage. <laughs> and I know. Oh, yeah, like just talk to one of your two right, kids. I'm just like everybody else. Some circumstances in life are out of our control, but it is our reaction to these events that determine the trajectory of our lives. John has chosen to be proactive to be the agent, the actor, the choice maker in his story. Not a victim of circumstance, perhaps John made the choice to be extraordinary. My parents got divorced when I was an early teen and that was a hard on the family, so I right. can understand what that's like to right. families. Right. And I was the person that helped to raise my younger brothers and helped my mom and that taught me a whole lot of discipline very fast. We were a family of very modest means. My dad was a furrier because I'm Greek by nature. Okay. And, right. and Greeks uh, either were in the restaurant business or in the fur business uh, uh -huh. back then. Wow. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and that was a very modest upbringing, but it, it was good. Everything was good. John, you're a very caring and compassionate and and passionate individual did some of that some of those values come do you think from that experience i don't know if it's just my nature or or those things shape my nature at what point in time did you decide you want to be a dentist how did that were you like the six-year-old john no actually it was in college i was originally thinking about a career in medicine uh -huh. or by the way a career in education or a career in technology. I was a systems analyst for IBM wow. to help pay my way. I was part-time right. trying to pay my way through college. And that's my first introduction to computers when a computer took up a whole room and it uses key punch cards. Right, exactly. Uh, I remember those not, days. <laughs> not like today. During dental school, after my wife and I got married, my scholarship was taken away. And we were on hard financial times, and I applied for an Air Force scholarship. So the Air Force created an opportunity for me to enter a general practice residency and begin my career uh, serving as an officer in the Air Force. Uh -huh. By the second year, I had applied for specialty training, and the Air Force allowed me to go to any specialty training in the country, and uh -huh. I chose the University of Washington out here because it had one of the few perioprost programs right. in the world. At the time, there were three. Uh -huh. This was one of them uh, because it followed my original mentor, Morty Amsterdam, and the other person that was in charge of this program was Ralph Udalis who was also famous at the time for perioprosthesis. And, uh -huh. and it was that that drove me to the West Coast. At that time, I had never been west of the Mississippi River. Wow. So what did you think of uh, the West Coast when you got here the first time? I actually quite enjoyed it. It uh -huh. was something I needed. It seemed so peaceful relative to what I was exposed to in the past, especially then, but which we're talking now in the early 80s, right. late 70s. And so it was a really nice change. That's a pretty unusual program, having the periodontal and restorative dentistry, prosthodontics, all in like one program. It was a, a several-year program. I was finished in two years. And it was, it literally changed my life for the rest of my life. And actually, to be fair, uh, my first year of dental school, I thought I made the wrong choice. I didn't think I would really enjoy it until I got more involved in the clinical aspects and, right. and started to meet some of the people who would then later on inspire me to go on to do other things. I would say I don't have an origin story that created a compelling reason for me to become a dentist. My experience as a young dental patient wasn't exceptional, but believe me, I've never looked back and it's 
Dennis B. has been great to me and great to my family and great to my life and no regrets. And, and John, you have been great to dentistry. I'm sitting here listening to you say, you know, the first year I, you know, you may have changed your mind and I'm thinking what a tremendous loss that would have been for the world, you know, based on, you know, what you've done with the rest of your career. So glad you stuck it out, John. You mentioned Marty Amsterdam a little earlier. Who, who would you identify as some of your mentors in your life? So the two biggest ones were Morton Amsterdam and D. Walter Cohen. As a sophomore dental student, when I first got introduced to Morty, he would be what today people would consider an expert. Uh, you know, there'd be questions involved, but once Morty would, would weigh in, nobody else would say anything else. Uh, and then it became... Saul Schluger and Ralph Udalis, who was the director of my graduate program uh -huh. when I was a graduate student. I would cite those four people as significant people in shaping my dental life. And how did they shape it? I mean, what kind of lessons or things did you take away from them? Morty did more of that than anyone because what he brought to me was, you know, doing dentistry is not just working on individual teeth. Right. and brought a much broader view. In fact, I credit him with actually developing the concept of interdisciplinary treatment. Uh, mm -hmm. Because up to that point, uh, people never put the whole piece together between all the aspects of what he did. It was huge. I mean, considering what he started 70 years ago right. is unfathomable by today's standards. We take that for granted but that really inspired me to be seeing much more than what I was looking at. And what I try to explain to even people that I work with today, you know, single-tooth dentistry doesn't mean simple-minded dentistry. And, right. And being able to understand much more than maybe the individual situation you're working on involving, you know, the cliches of the whole person and all those kinds of things. and was really way ahead of its time. Oh, yeah, absolutely was. I mean, in my own dental school experience, you had every discipline had its own department, and you as a student kind of had to put those different pieces together. Nobody actually, for, in my experience, you know, at, at Oregon, they didn't really lay out a, an interdisciplinary kind of approach to care. Morty did that for me so much it was very clear to me, I want to do that. Right. <laughs> Whatever that is, well, I want to do that. John is deeply entrenched in his work and like many extraordinary innovators, may not find the perfect work-life balance. But he strives to be fully present wherever he is, whatever he does. John ascribes to a quote from Chateaubriand, a master in the art of living makes little distinction between work and play. The idea of the quote is you don't see any difference between working and playing. To himself, uh, he's always doing both. And I would say that does epitomize me, maybe to a fault in some way. Uh, but I make no excuse about that. I take what I do seriously. Right. But you know... Uh, what I also try to explain to certainly younger practitioners and people that I'm exposed to, you know, when you're home, you need to be home. And when you're working, you need to be working. And so I don't claim to always have balance in my life, but I can tell you whatever I'm doing, it's 100%. When I go home, I work very hard not to be conducting business when I'm home. So whether I'm driving home in my car, I have to finish it before I pull in my garage or wherever my home is so I could be with family. So that's that whole piece on being present. And I take that very seriously because I think to all our listeners, uh, you wouldn't be listening to this if you didn't take what you did seriously and you're a professional about it. And we are very committed to what we do. And it's very hard to have balance, quote unquote balance, but you could at least have boundaries. And if you don't set up boundaries, then your life spills over into one or the other and you don't know who you are anymore. And, and everything suffers. And yeah. everything suffers. I'm working more now than I anticipate I would be if you want to call it work. But I'm having more fun now than I ever have had in my life. 
right? And so I think, well, so whether it's work or play, it's like if you're really enjoying your life experience and you're doing what you enjoy, that's what counts. I'm fortunate enough now to say the same thing, partly because my needs from work are not the same. Uh, I'm doing okay and, and I really enjoy what I'm doing. And you know, one of the benefits of being where I am in my career is I certainly know a lot of influential other people. Right. And my growth opportunities have now started to accelerate. And I'm really enjoying being able to use that to help other people and boost their careers. So I get a lot of satisfaction in helping younger people expedite their growth uh, because it was very painful, you know, in the beginning. When I talk about, you know, my first year in practice, my adjusted gross income was zero. And the second year I made less than my hygienist. I am certain that Everyone listening to this has their survival story or what they had to go through to pay the bills. And it's just that piece. But (laughs) I'd love to be able to make that easier for people when that's possible. I'm sitting here, John, just reflecting back on my own. I can remember balancing my checkbook on April 15th one year, and I had a dollar and 36 cents left. And I was so excited because... I was able to pay all my taxes and I was in a, and I didn't have to borrow money. One of my staff members said, you know, what are you, what are you so excited about? And I said, I have a dollar and 36 cents in my checkbook. <laughs> and, and I'm, I know that she looked at me like, yeah, you're kidding. You know, you know, yeah. that's not true. But you know, when you start from scratch and build a practice, anybody that's done that, you know, that's a huge challenge. You yeah, know, and even yeah. today back 45 years ago it was, it is today. And you have some of those moments, right? Yeah, my wife and I still remember when it was two for one at Burger King. Right. And and we could take advantage of that. We joke about it now, but, you know, the problems for younger people are the same. They're just bigger. Yeah, Uh, oh yeah. The the price tags are higher and it's more pressure. You do a really good job of living in the here and now, like in the present. And... I'm always looking forward as well. I'm never looking back, right? I mean, I'm totally with you. Early on when I worked with a lot of the graduate students, when they'd finished their graduate program, I would say to them something like, I hope you just completed your worst work. And they would look at me like I'm crazy because they worked so hard and it right. was amazing. And my point is, if you don't think you can improve, then it's time to give up. If I have to draw my satisfaction from any contributions or accomplishments only in the past, that's not satisfying for me. It's, it's yeah. what I'm doing moving forward. Today. Today. And, and tomorrow. And tomorrow. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that, that constant, being a continual student, right, a lifelong student, I think is that's our most important job or responsibility as a, as a clinician or as a dentist or, you know, is to be a lifelong student, right? To always, Absolutely. always continue to improve. I remember a story, I can't remember who, he was a famous violin player and he was like in his mid nineties and he was practicing, he was still playing like five or six hours a day and somebody, and they asked him like, so why, why, you know, you're like one of the most accomplished violin players in the world. Why are you still playing? Like, and he's, and his response was, I'm still seeing improvement, right? He was still, in his mind, he was still getting better. And he was probably still getting better, right? I'm 68 and I feel like I'm doing the best work of my life right now, right? And I hold open the possibility that 10 years from now, I'll I'll be doing the best work of my life at that point in my life, right? Like it's going to continue to grow and get better. Yeah, I'm totally with you and I totally understand what you're saying. Family is a core value and a source of deep fulfillment for John. He has crafted an environment that encourages his family's participation in his work. It sort of happens organically, and in my situation, it happened organically. And I have my one son is the CEO of the center, has an MBA from the University of Washington, and his twin brother, not identical twin, is also the dentist, prosthodontist with a fellowship in implantology and my wife is involved in accounts payable and 
My daughter-in-laws are both involved. And so it is quite the family business. <laughs> no nepotism here, right? No. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mention that. I would say every part of the family piece, their contributions are based on the value of their contributions and not just because of the relationship. Sure. Otherwise, that creates lots of tension in the family business. And I'm very fortunate and I don't have that problem. Yeah, well, I think family, they also take some personal ownership, right? Absolutely. And it's like, I, I'm not just representing, I'm just not punching the clock, representing a company or an organization, but it's actually, you know, this is my family here and I'm representing my family as well. So I think there's some, I mean, a pressure to kind of live up to that expectation as well. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I mean, everybody understands when you work with family, there's always tension. Family has a way of working that out. Right. And that's happened uh, for me over the years. I would say you're right. The buy-in, uh, because it's family, is the priceless piece. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, uh, it's been a tremendous source of joy and uh -huh. satisfaction as a family to be able to do that, that uh, we cherish and never take for granted. Right. I'm just so blessed to have the opportunity to work with my niece and nephew and, you know, my son-in-law, daughter-in-law at Carry Free. It's been really a wonderful thing for me to be able to spend more time with them, you know, and just share my vision of, of things as, as well as watching them grow and, uh, and be part of that, that business. When you go back through the years and you think about it, you know, people talk about family first. And right. And you pretty much have to do that, right? right? You you do have to make sacrifices and make some decisions that maybe you might have made differently, but all of those decisions I've never regretted. I think what's helped make the business successful is every member of my family could have had their own path in their in their own chosen career. Right. do it on their own, but they chose to do this. Yeah. We chose to do this together, which I think has helped because the commitment level is there because yeah. the, nobody's here because they have to be. Right. And you have your grandchildren close. Yes. I'm really fortunate. Yeah. Right. And so you have a relationship with your grandchildren, which I think is so important. I was raised on a farm and my grandparents lived on the farm next door. And so I, I had a tremendous relationship with my grandparents, right? And both sets, the role of mentorship. Like I, I, my grandfather's one of my earliest mentors, right? And mentors play such an important role in young, in, in young people's lives and creating their values and in direction in their lives. And I think that gets kind of undervalued today. I do value my time with my grandchildren. Uh, I would say... I am fortunate that geographically we're all close, but even if we weren't, I think what's important is at least the time you do spend with right. your family. And, and a psychologist, I remember when I was traveling a lot, gave me a really good piece of advice and she, we were chatting, in fact, in the back of a lecture room one time. Right. And, and I was feeling kind of guilty being away from home and, my children were in sporting events or other things, and I would miss maybe what I would think would be significant moments in their life. And she said to me, one of the things as professionals you realize that's just going to happen. You can't make yourself available for everything. But she said what children depend on most is not necessarily that you were there to witness the event, but you cared enough to ask them about what happened. And right. so, you know, we always videotaped the event and I'd watch it right away when I would get home and spend the time with my kids that way. And that's how I always extend my time with my grandchildren right. the same way. So it's it's to be involved and and really make that level of connection that made so much difference. And they know that you care. Yeah, they do. But I look back on my life from here and it's like, it seemed like my children grew up so fast and I was quite involved in their lives. 
and we have you know it's funny it's not only did they grow up so fast with all the knowledge we have today i don't know how my kids survived <laughs> my parenting because <laughs> i don't i don't feel like i did all the things i was supposed I, I to think, do you know you feel a little insufficient yeah, as a as I a dad do. right i mean i feel some of that yeah. inadequacy of like yeah. i did I do a good enough job? Did I spend enough? I worry about that now. Did I spend enough time with you? Did I make sure that you knew how important you were to me? And I, my children tell me yes. That that's yeah. all. In fact. I, you have to be a little lucky too. <laughs> yeah, you know. But um, but I just look back and I think, and I was so focused on career and and being the provider and doing all that that while I was involved in their life, it just seems like it went by so fast in the rearview mirror, right? And now I, I so I'm really focused on like. I don't want to have that same experience with my grandchildren. Like, and, and now it's like, instead of looking more forward, it's like, I want to freeze time right now. Yeah, slow it down. I want to slow it down so that yeah, I can spend I more that. time with them and, and, and really enjoy that part of their life because now I know how short that is. From the time they're six to 18, it's like t 12 short years and, and they grow up in those 12 years, right? And uh, so anyway, I just, I was thinking about that the other day. It's like, it was kind of ironic because I was always looking ahead, looking forward to things when I was younger. And now I'm kind of like, well, I just want to slow it down. Right. You know, and, be in the moment. In the moment. And unfortunately, it seems like the clock is going faster instead, right? It seems that way. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, uh, that's an interesting, you know, old people always told you that. And I always thought, yeah, whatever. Yeah. We should have grandchildren first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I get it. That actually would be a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Cause do you worry about whether or not you're being the, the, the best granddad or not? It's like, I don't, I don't worry about it. I just play with, we just have fun. Right. No, it's them. not in my vocabulary. That's funny you say that. I one of my grandsons was like, grandpa, can we do this? And I said, okay, so, the first thing you have to know is it doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Forward thinking is only possible when we remain open to new ideas and practices. Original thought requires courage to stand apart. Those who spot opportunities to improve the systems around them often walk a thin line. Celebrated as forward thinkers, or condemned as heretics. To remain credible, John tempers open thought with science. What I tried to do at the center to be fair and respectful is I preferred to be a game changer rather than an expert regurgitator. And to do that, I would say to move that needle requires quite a bit of responsibility to take oh, yeah. the arrows. But I feel that's what you meant when I talked about if you show me the data, I'll change or right. prove me wrong, is I feel more comfortable with the data now and more secure on those platforms right. to be able to do that. People get very uncomfortable with skepticism uh, when you're learning something new. And you know... That shouldn't be the, the part that really worries people. You should, I feel, when I listen to somebody, even when they, what they're saying is very different, my first inclination is, why could that be right? Right. And I embrace the skepticism and I continue to see if it, it creates some kind of logic that moves me to what people call the second level of being quizzical. Right. I was going to say right. curiosity, curiosity. Is, so is, the, is the key there, is right? Is the key. And if you're starting to now ask questions that seem to be answered in what makes sense or the data makes sense, we move to the third level of learning, which is called agreement. And, you know, now you can sort of embrace what might be new, but nothing changes until you get to the fourth level, which is called commitment. You have to have ownership to what that is, whether it's whatever thing you do in life, whether it's controlling your health or being on some fitness program or whatever you do, it takes a level of discipline to move that needle. And those pieces are what creates the difference between it being just education that stays on the table and nothing happens right. with actually doing something in your life. and. Right. Making it life-changing. What That's what I feel 
is what we're trying to do at the center, and right. we don't always hit the mark, but right. it's not just about knowing better, it's doing better. And if you don't know better, you can't do better. Yeah. And if you know better and you don't do better, you feel worse about yourself. So Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean. But being the first out there and taking the arrows in the back, that takes some courage. I felt comfortable with it. Uh -huh. You know, if I felt that it wasn't just a wild right. harebrained thing, right. that it had some substance to it. I'm willing to take that on. And you spent some time analyzing yep. it and looking at it and going through those four yep. stages and then you felt That's more comfortable. That's how you change. Yeah, for sure. You know, one of the things I appreciate about you, John, is you're a truth seeker. You're a truth teller and you're a truth seeker. One of my favorite quotes of you is, in, you know, in God we trust, everybody else show me your science. <laughs> yeah. Certainly when I'm on the podium, I feel like I have a responsibility and I may not always be out there on the bleeding edge, but I've never really felt like I had to retract any one of my significant recommendations. And I feel responsible that I don't want to derail anybody's potential career either. Right. So I, I make my comments carefully and hopefully they're weighed on credible evidence. So right. obviously we don't get derailed by conflict of interest or whatever that is because, you know, look, uh, there are always people with good intentions trying to provide recommendations. I'm just trying to make sure I don't have to retract them and, and give people recommendations that really make a difference. And I've been very fortunate in the time I've spent for that due diligence has really paid off. Well, you spent a lot of time reviewing the scientific literature. Yeah, I read 28 journals a month. Yeah, right? You are a reader. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't read every <laughs> right, article right. cover to cover, but I pick the more scientific ones that go into our, our curriculum here. We built a curriculum for practicing dentists, and all the courses, they're not fragmented. They all tie into one another, and it's a graduate program more right. than anything else. Yeah, and and so they get an opportunity... Uh, to be exposed to them, you know, the science that, that carries the most value to like what you're trying to teach. Yeah. And I think it's also, I feel really comfortable giving credit where the credit is due. Right. And I believe in, you know, obviously the buzzword is evidence-based, right. not eminence-based right. uh, science, which we've done in the past, but that's because we had nothing else. And now we're Better than that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I appreciate too, John, on that same topic, you know, you're always like, you know, here's my recommendation and based on this science, if you think I'm wrong, show me where I'm wrong. Yes. And show me your science. If and I'll change. Right. And I'll change, right? If there's better science out there that I'm not aware of, I want to know. Yeah. Right? And that comes to, I, I also believe uh, none of us are smarter than all of us. And so I'm constantly trying to use the center as an opportunity, uh, also as a funnel to learn from other people. And I say when people come, you know, people learn from me, the front of the room, but I learn from you within the room. And I learn from our mentors that also come and help support the center. So I'm in a fortunate position to be in that opportunity to have many channels of not only experiences, but learning opportunities. Right, a lot of knowledge, lot of knowledge. flowing both directions. Yeah. John, one of the uh, things too that I appreciate about you is you're like one of the first and, and almost only educators that share their failures. Because we're so used to seeing all these success cases and how beautiful they are. And uh, look at me, like I did this, I'm really awesome and, you know, I'm an incredible restorative dentist or whatever. And then, you know, John gets up and shows, well, take a look at this case. It failed. Looking back, here's what failed, why it failed and how I might have prevented that or done it differently so that we would have had a better outcome. And John, as a, as a practicing dentist sitting in the audience, we don't learn anything when it's a successful case, right? The times I learned something is when it failed and then I have to go back. Part of the mentality when I finished all my training was if something went wrong, it's what did I do wrong? 
And so it was the blame game piece, right. and it created a sense of embarrassment. And it's what I believe harbors a lot of dysfunction in, in many of us, and a, it creates a, a lot of discontent or maybe a need for what I call people being more of an imposter than what's the reality of practice. When I began to realize maybe the failures were not because of what I did, it was my lack of understanding or my inadequate knowledge or somewhere where I could fix it. So my point to people is, what if I can improve even more now with my education than what I can just do in my performance level? Because that will only take you so far. Because even if you could perform something well, but inappropriately or incorrectly, right. you're not going to be successful. So I use the failures as a way of demonstrating my evolution in my learning experience. And right. that's what I'm trying to help people with, that I actually believe that a lot of the problems are not in, are not stemming from your inability, but it's from your understanding. Right. And when we look at failures and then it's like, we always wanna internalize that as like, I failed. But looking at it from the standpoint in that something in the system failed and what role did I play in that and how can I improve that, you know, for the next time? Oh, for sure. I mean, if, right? if everybody could be a superstar for a product, I mean, we'd all buy Serena Williams' tennis racket <laughs> and go play tennis. I right. mean, it's not going to happen. So what kind of gets you excited today in the here and now? I would say seeing what the future brings and how we can shape where we're headed in the future. Because uh -huh. I do feel that we're making an impact in, in creating uh, maybe a more efficient and better direction as we proceed to the future. And that would be by making less mistakes as we move forward. That uh -huh. would be one thing. And I get really excited by doing that in a more direct way for people and helping them. And the rest for me is, is family. And so right. being able to spend time with my family and having quality time with my family and my grandchildren, et cetera, that's obviously a part of my family, but yeah. that's where I get my right. most joy. John is a shining example of how education, curiosity, and implementation can lead to innovation and industry disruption. He has found his ikigai and shared it with the world. To master the art of living, he embodies his values and tries to be fully present. Thank you so much to John Coyce at the Coyce Center for helping grow our community of extraordinary minds. And thank you for coming on this journey with me today. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. <laughs>